So have you ever been to an airport or a train station and heard the announcement about unattended baggage? The one that says, this is a special security announcement. Please maintain control of your personal belongings at all times. Unattended baggage is subject to search, inspection, damage, and removal. Do not accept items or packages from unknown individuals. If you see un unattended baggage, report it immediately. Right? We've all heard it before, and we all know why it's said, right? Because if you leave something unattended, no one knows whether it was left accidentally or intentionally. No one knows what's in it, and no one knows if it's harmful or harmless. No one knows what might happen if the bag stays there or if it gets moved. And so we are told to keep our bags with us so that we prevent false alarms, but we're also told to report unattended bags that we see so that they can be safely taken care of. It's, it's the idea that Homeland Security has, has pushed, has marketed of the see something, say something. It's a reminder to people that the right thing is to tell if you suspect something is going wrong and to let it be investigated by people that know how to investigate it. It's a way to encourage people to do the right thing instead of sitting on information that could potentially be harmful to someone else. So in our passage in Esther this week, our focus shifts from Esther and the, uh, and the harem going back outdoors to Mordecai at the gate and a conversation that he witnesses with potentially deadly consequences. Um, so Esther 2, 19 through 23. What's that one? I'm sorry. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai I was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed, obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Achan and Peresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king's possessions. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, so when does this passage take place? After Esther's feast. At some point after Esther's feast. So what's it say is happening? What's the event that's happening? Right. When the virgins were gathered together the second time. We don't know exactly when that is or exactly what that means. Um, so we know it's sometime after Esther's crown queen. And we know it's sometime before Haman casts lots in chapter 3, which is in the 12th year. So it's somewhere between the 7th year of Ahasuerus and the 12th year of Ahasuerus. Because those are the two times we know. But... It's somewhere in between there, um, but no one knows exactly what's actually happening, but there are a couple of ideas. The first thought 
is that it was the virgins that had not yet seen Ahasuerus were being sent home. So they gathered them together to, to send them back home. The question would be, would King Ahasuerus really send beautiful girls that could be in his harem back home? What do you think? Yeah, that's not really the Ahasuerus that we've been learning about. Um, so we come to the second thought, which is that the king kind of liked the idea of having all these beautiful girls brought to him. And so he continued to collect virgins from around the, the empire for his harem. Uh, and this seems far more likely just based on what we know of King Ahasuerus, though we don't know for sure that that's what this means. Um, because even though Ahasuerus found his new, new, his new queen, it didn't stop him from also wanting to have a harem filled with beautiful young women. He's the kind of king that we've seen that is a more, more, more kind of, kind of has that attitude. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what we have to base that on. And then where was Mordecai? Oh, sorry, Sandy. I just wondered, so if they were still virgins, they hadn't yet, the thought is they hadn't yet belonged to the king. And so they, they could p potentially go back home but, but this is just the ones who hadn't yet gone into him. So, yeah, that's the, that's the, the theory, at least. So where was Mordecai? He was at the king's gate. And why is this a, an important location? It doesn't tell us that in Esther, but from what we know, why is this an important location? Important decisions, that's where the, were made there, the leaders met there. That's the place where official business is conducted. It's kind of like uh, going to court today. They would hold court at the gate. Um, if you recall in Ruth chapter four, Boaz went to the gate because that's when he wanted to find the, the men of importance, the elders, so that he could conduct his official business of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. Absolutely. There was, the, and, and, and we see that attitude from Mordecai when he's walking back and forth to the palace every day to get news of Esther, right? Uh, and so, so there's, there are some that believe that the position of, of honor to be able to be at the gate, because not everybody could just sit there, that there are some that believe because Esther then became queen and he was her her father that they they gave him a position there and some believe that he already had 
some level of prominence. I mean, he was able to walk basically right up to the palace every day. So there, there had to have been, he, he couldn't have been just some guy off the street, but, um, but, but there is, a, there are those who believe that he got the position after Esther became queen so that he could um, gather more information in that way. We don't know. The author didn't tell us, and so we just have to, we just have to go with it. Um, so, but what we do know is he was allowed to be at the gate, and so he had some sort of standing in the community um, because he was allowed to be standing there and not just uh, not just passing by um, but he like Esther he still had not revealed his nationality his religion either um, and and that's another way that like we talked about in our last session, that we see the hand of God at work, not just in Esther's life, but in Mordecai's life, in a man that was not honoring God completely, or not honoring the law of God, at least. And then we get to the, uh, to the palace intrigue, right? Now, this was a very normal thing to have happen, especially for this time. Um, Warren Wiersbe says, only a few officers had free access to the king, and they often used their privileges to get bribes from people who needed the king's help. And I think I forgot to give this one out, but if you think back to Daniel and the story of the lion's den, so it's Daniel chapter 6. says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom those satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so then they come up with the, the he, can't, he can't pray and then they catch him praying because that's what Daniel does and then he goes and has to be put into the lion's den. The other officials didn't like him because he was too honest and too faithful to the king. He was, he was trying to do the right thing. The other officials, they were potentially up to something. Uh, definitely had some selfish tendencies. And so we see that this is not something that is abnormal in this era. Uh, so who were these king's eunuchs that, that were angry with the Hashverosh? 
Big Thin and Turish. And why were they angry with Ahasuerosh? It doesn't say. That was a trick question. <laughs> right. There was definitely a lot of resentment, and it could have been from a number of different things. Um, it could have, it could have just been, he took me and made me a eunuch. But it could have also been that they were Vashti supporters. And the fact that a replacement queen was found made them angry. Um, maybe they were angry that someone with no noble blood was chosen to be queen but maybe it had nothing to do with Esther at all. It could truly be anything. Because as we've seen, Ahasuerosh was not the nicest of men, right? He was very selfish, very prideful. He was influenced easily by others. Uh, it truly could have been anything that made them angry. But they were angry enough that they wanted to they were plotting to assassinate the king. And as king, Ahasuerus was kind of insulated from the outside world, or, or at least from the problems of the outside world, right? You, as we'll see later, you couldn't even approach the king, you know, things like that. And so he had nearly unlimited wealth, nearly unlimited authority, and definitely sought unlimited pleasure. Uh, but people were still plotting, and some succeed in those plans to kill kings of the time. And in fact, someone was successful later because King Ahasuerus was assassinated. Your timeline says 464 BC, but I found everywhere from 464 to 466. But whenever his reign ended, he was killed. Um, and he was killed by the commander of the royal bodyguard. And the belief is that his own son is the one that paid that royal bodyguard to, to, to kill him so that he could go ahead and be king. Um, so again, uh, Big Thin and, and Teresh weren't alone in their, in, in their uh, anger at the king. So we don't know why they were angry, but what we do know is that Mordecai providentially found out about it and he chose to do something about it rather than to sit back and watch what might happen. So what does Mordecai do with the information after he hears about it? He goes to Esther and he tells her, so he had a position of prominence, some level of authority and respect, why do you think he went to Esther instead of dealing with this directly? So possibly he wouldn't have been believed. She would have had some influence over him. Yeah, he may have had prominence in the town, but not necessarily with the king. 
Um, there's also the fear that he doesn't know who else is involved in this plot, right? And if he went to the wrong person to try to get to the king, he could have been killed and still had the king be killed, right? Many officials of the time were corrupt themselves. And so, so it, it could have been any of those things, but those are some of the reasons that, that Mordecai may not have just gone directly, um, directly to the king. But what did Esther do with the information that she got from Mordecai? Yeah, she went to the king and she went in Mordecai's name. And what happened to the king? He lived. He survived, right? Now, he, he, he got angry. He, he came to the, the knowledge and they, they ended up in... I love that it said, like, it's my favorite thing in this whole passage. The affair was investigated and found to be so. Because it means he didn't just go out and take the word of Esther and Mordecai. He actually did look into what was going on, um, which we could completely uh we could completely imagine and picture Ahasuerus just hearing this and just being like what are they thinking and off with their heads you know like the the queen of hearts does uh in Alice in Wonderland but but he he didn't uh they they did an investigation and after the investigation what happened to the eunuchs they were hanged. Now that phrase hanged on the gallows can mean that they were hanged like we would think of, a, a hanging from a rope. It could also mean that they were impaled on a stake and left there to be seen by the people. Um, because, that, yeah, that was a form of capital punishment that the Persians did use. Um, and they were not known for their, their leniency. In that. Um, to, a, to an extent, yes. Yes, because they it wasn't that they weren't doing their jobs, but they were they were planning disobedience. <laughs> now we think about the Persians and we think about this, this hanging and, um, but the Jews methods of capital punishment were not that different or were not in terms of, of uh, yeah, because stoning was their method of choice. And stoning is not much prettier than being impaled on a stake. Um, but when they wanted to truly humiliate someone the Jews would hang them on a tree until sundown. And that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so we, um, we just, we can't just fault the Persians. We have to recognize that it happens more than the, just them. So, but what happened to Mordecai? Nothing. 
He saved the king's life and all that happened was that it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. Do you That is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, she was saying that that they kept, she went in the name of Mordecai, even though they were trying to keep their ancestry quiet. Was there a relationship? Likely they would have known something of their relationship, that they were family. I don't know whether they would have known adoption or not. It's hard to tell. So, yeah. So do you think Mordecai expected to receive something in exchange for this information? Yeah, I get lots of no's. Yeah, it's, we don't know. um, And we don't know for sure what the habits of the time are. Right, and so that's one thought. If he was expecting it, would would he have just gone directly to the king? And did Esther bring Mordecai in with Mordecai's knowledge, or did she just do that on her own? Yeah, yeah. There's lots of lots of questions, but normally, if someone saves your life, it's not something you're going to forget about soon or quickly, right? You hear all sorts of stories about um, that, that I, I read one just just last week about somebody who still gets a, um, that they were at a, it was a random like park or something and, and did the Heimlich maneuver on a kid. And this was years ago. And now every year he still gets a Christmas card from that family just because they know what what it could have meant if he wasn't there. And so there's just uh, something about it that you don't forget. There's, for us, there's an intersection that we drive by somewhat regularly. And sometimes as we drive by that intersection, I'm transported back to a time many years ago that we were driving home from town and a car barreled through a stop sign, speeding clearly out of control and Ray was driving and he was able to swerve out of the way and that it was just enough for the car to miss us by inches. But it would have slammed right into me and to two of the kids the way we were sitting in the car. And there's, I remember in that moment knowing that I was gonna die. But I didn't because Ray saved us. And I will never forget that feeling of gratitude when we drive by that spot. But this was not the case for King Ahasuerus. There was no party, no parade. I mean, this is a man who gives feasts for the, on a whim, you know. No thank you. We as society today are conditioned for instant gratification. We've all experienced at some point in our lives laughing at something that a preschooler does or says. 
and having it repeated 735 times in the next five minutes to try to get that same reaction, right? We've been there, we've seen that. And so we look at this situation where Mordecai has saved the life of the king and receives nothing, and we can sometimes think this is unfair, this is sad, but in reality, this is a piece of the but God. This is God's providence in the timing, and we're going to see that not until spring because it comes much later. Um, but this is, this is a piece of God's providence. Him not having the feast is God's providence. This is one of those times that helps to comfort me while we don't know what God is doing, that his timing is perfect. And I remind myself that someday, like Mordecai, I will get to look back and just say, wow. I will get to look back and be in awe of God and think about the time that I thought I was forgotten, but that God was still working. But the fact that someone doesn't thank us for doing good should not stop us from continuing to do good. Did I give somebody Revelation 22, 12? Perfect. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give everyone according to what he has done. God is keeping a record of the good. And so whether we experience that instant gratification or not, we know and we can be encouraged that God saw it and God is taking care of it. But let's pause for a minute. Let's go back and let's put ourselves in Mordecai's shoes. We've sort of covered the, the details, but I want us to just think about what... What do you think Mordecai's motiv motivation was for having heard something that he went and said something, he did something about it? So what was his motivation? Part of it was Esther. Right. If King Ahasuerosh were killed, would Esther have been safe? That definitely would have been a question that, that Mordecai would have asked of himself in that. What else? Would you think there was something else that might have motivated him? Just doing the right thing. Yeah. We've seen his nature from what little we've, we've seen of him, but we've seen his nature is, is care and compassion. It is humility. And those are, those are some of those things that it would kind of be natural for him to do the right thing. We don't know if traditionally, if things like this happened regularly to Ahasuerosh and whether he did reward or promote or give some sort of something for this type of thing. And so there's possibly a selfish motivation in this. Um, not likely based on what we know of Mordecai, but still possible. 
Do you think that he thought about his experience with Esther being taken away from him by the king when he was deciding to save the king? Would you have thought about it if it had been your daughter that had been taken by the king with no, no chance for a future? Would it have been something that crossed your mind? Would there have been some of that anger? I have to imagine that the thought at least crossed his mind. Because maybe if Ahasuerus died, he could bring Esther home. She would no longer be a virgin. And so marrying would have been a, an entirely different story. But he could have had her home. But Mordecai chose to save the king. He helped someone that hurt him deeply. Now, Mordecai didn't have the New Testament like we do, but we're going to use the New Testament to help us. So Galatians 6.10. So who does this verse, to whom does this verse say we should do good? Everyone. And when are we to do good? Whenever we have the opportunity. And then there's the last line of the verse that says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It doesn't say only to those who are of the household of faith. It says especially. I'm going to be honest with you here. I have both witnessed and experienced Christians deeply wounding other Christians, yet acting very differently toward non-believers. Some of the deepest hurts have come in the church. But that's not what Galatians 6.10 tells us, right? We're supposed to do good to, to everyone, especially other believers. And while I, I don't want to harp on this, I do want to make the point. Everyone means everyone. It means the neighbor kid down the street that threw a rock at your dog. It means the driver that cut you off on the highway. It means the person that stole your seat in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. It means everyone. Our good works should not be based on our expectations of a response or of reward, or our expectations of behavior. And we studied Romans last year. Romans also tells us, or speaks on this. So it's Romans 12, verses 14 through 20. Impossible so far as it depends on you. 
And so what do, what do these verses in Romans tell us we should do? Bless those who persecute us. Bless those who persecute us. It, it tells us to live peaceable lives, right? It tells us to not repay evil with evil. Go ahead. I've heard that interpreted as, as a form of embarrassment to that person who has a sin of embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've heard, that it's more a shame than a than an, a physical a physical punishment. Oh, I thought it was like choking and fire. I thought it means it was a good thing. <laughs> well, we've heard that somewhere. We've heard that somewhere. Yeah. At least that's familiar to me as well. Yeah, it could definitely be that. Yeah. So, th so that's that's one that is one thought. Yes, that it would be because they have done evil to you, and you are doing good to them. That you are you are shaming them them into it. Well, it shouldn't be our motivation. <laughs> Right. It, it, it would be easier if they were kind of mean back to you or something, then you wouldn't feel as bad for being mean or it wouldn't make you think about it. Yeah. 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 What we do know <laughs> from these verses is that it doesn't matter what the response is from somebody else. It doesn't matter what actions they've taken. We are supposed to do good. We are supposed to bless them. We are supposed to, to not hold a grudge. We are supposed to be honorable towards them because the gospel of Christ transforms the way we view the people who harm us the most. Because think about it for a minute. We are disciples. We follow a man who died for his enemies. And now we look at Mordecai and Adester, because she also had to make that same choice. And we can marvel at what they did. But sometimes we need to just stop and we need to ask ourselves if we are more like Esther and Mordecai or if we are like the young lawyer in Luke 10. So I gave somebody Luke 10, 25 through 29. And so what was the parable that Jesus is about to tell in response to this young lawyer? Anybody remember the who is your neighbor? 
right? It's the Good Samaritan. And so that's a familiar story to, to most of us. There should be a familiar story. What was the point of the Good Samaritan parable? He took care of someone who was in need that should have been his enemy, right? We can't make excuses to not help someone. We should strive for the good of everyone, even a pagan king. And we should not strive to do what is right toward others because of their gratitude, but because of his glory. And so I'm going to leave you with that as we go to our small groups.